The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket games from the Virginia Lottery are here. The Scratcher gives you the chance to win up to $100,000. The online game gives you the chance to win up to $1 million. For more information, visit VALottery.com. So when you're doing the Jello Biafra voice, yeah. you got to do it from the way in the back of your throat. Uh-huh. And the, well, the front of your throat, back of your mouth. It comes from the same place as like the David Lynch voice. So, but like David Lynch, is a, it's, it's the same place, but it's a little lower. And then Jello's a little higher. How high are you going to go? <laughs> I can go as high as you want. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. I'm Marcus Parks. And I'm Carolina Hidalgo. Welcome to Dead Kennedys Part 4. Now, for this episode, the book sources we used for the first three sort of ran out after Fresh Fruit for Rotten Vegetables. So, for these last two episodes, we have a whole new source list, because Carolina did a huge amount of actual journalism for this series. And I really don't even know what that means. <laughs> it means that you, re- you read a whole bunch of different sources and you formed a story through a many disparate sources. Oh, yeah. That, yeah, I did that. <laughs> All right, let's go to this list. We used... American Hardcore by Stephen Blush, Our Bank of Beer Life by Michael Azarad, Dreadnought, King of Afropunk by D.H. Peligro, MDC, Memoir of a Damaged Civilization by Dave Dichter, the collected editions of both The Search and Destroy and Touch and Go Zines, and a master's thesis by Jonathan Kyle Williams called Rock Against Racism, The Punk Movement, Cultural Hegemony, and Reaganism in the 80s, along with countless articles, interviews, and tour diaries. That's it. That's it. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> oh, you did a hell of a job with this, darling. You really did. Oh, well, well thank you. Thank you. <laughs> as far as why we're doing five parts instead of four, like we originally planned, you know, you probably already heard, but we had a big fucking family emergency. We had to go down to Texas for mm-hmm. a, a long time. Uh, so, you know, we kind of been playing catch up ever since. And, of course, we very much appreciate everyone's uh, kind words of support and, you know, your patience yes, in waiting for us you. to get this out. Thank you very much. But perhaps even more so than that, we found in researching the last part of this series that the Dead Kennedy story encompasses a huge chunk of the 80s punk scene. They've got their fingers in fucking everything. Yeah. So there's a lot to talk about here when it comes to the story of punk overall. So let's get to it. Okay, yeah. Oh, now, now, (laughs) now. We're going to do it now. So when we last left the Dead Kennedys, they'd just picked up D.H. Peligro as their new drummer and they'd recorded and released In God We Trust, Inc. as a follow-up to their debut album. Following that, the band embarked on another East Coast tour. The last time DK had come through, they didn't even have a single released in the region, and the shows were therefore a bit lackluster. But in 1981, with a groundbreaking album and EP to support them, the kids came out in fucking droves. 
See, along with a host of other bands and kids based in cities on both coasts, the Dead Kennedys had helped inspire a scene that would start local, then go national, before finally becoming a global phenomenon. This subgenre of punk was known as hardcore, and the 1981 Dead Kennedys tour of the East Coast was one of the inflection points of the scene. Yes. Yes. It's actually, that's all it is. Yeah. And when you say kids, we mean literal kids. We mean 14, 15-year-old kids. 12. 12 in some cases. As young as 12. Because the thing is, the Dead Kennedys, they pushed to do as many all-ages shows that they could. So that way that these young kids, these teenagers could come out and see their show, which was very, very smart. It's extremely smart because before this time, before the time of the Dead Kennedys, like before the early 80s, like now the all-ages punk show is an institution. So much so that it's almost a joke. You know, it's, it's almost <laughs> I like... I mean, that's how we grew up. Yeah, right? exactly. No, it's, it's almost a cliche. But, you know, back then, this whole scene was still being formed. And Dead Kennedys were a big part of that. Yes. Like in New York City when they played at Bonds, where they had an ad for the show that said, no one over 18 admitted without child. <laughs> yeah, I, I see what you're talking And like a lot of all ages shows they would play, they had to play the matinee, which means at three o'clock. <laughs> Doors open at one, three o'clock show. Yeah. But it was still like a hardcore show with the band playing as loud as they could and Jello head diving first into the crowd and crowd surfing amongst these kids who couldn't believe how awesome it is. <laughs> And the kids, they would get on stage and they would start to stage dive too and, and crowd surf. And it's even better when they're younger anyways because they're, they're lighter. But, <laughs> then, yeah, they're lighter and they're, you know, they bounce higher. Yeah, yeah it's more yeah. fun actually. <laughs> they're much less likely to break something. Get me a blanket. We're going to make them really go high. So, and then the show at Bonds, it, it ended with uh, the Dead Kennedys uh, playing Chemical Warfare. And then Klaus Fluoride slams his bass down on the stage and D.H. Beligro, he kicks over his drum kit while Jello stage dives one last time. Wow. Yeah. For a 14-year-old, that's amazing. It's got to be the coolest fucking thing you've ever seen. <laughs> and that was the idea, just to rock out. And they did it the next night with Bad Brains opening for them. Wow. They set that up. I don't, it's amazing. Well, the way that they got Bad Brains to open for them is that they uh, they drove to this weird commune farm in Virginia where Bad Brains were like living in at that time. Wow. Yes, it, it was very strange. They were they went there to meet the band and to meet their lead singer HR. And although it might have been bad timing when they got there, because apparently HR was in the middle of a verbal fest. <laughs> uh, to cleanse himself away from negative energy. Right. So the dead Kennedys right. are just sitting there on the couch while HR is gesturing and flailing his arms and trying to scribble notes. And, and they're just like, okay, I, are you coming to the show? <laughs> just just nod, HR. Just not Okay. All right. And Bad Brains came and they just blew the lid off. Like they just killed it. Almost better than dead Kennedys. Yeah. Say. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So maybe that cleanse worked. <laughs> or maybe HR was going through one of his many mental breakdowns. Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> but I mean, that's the thing about HR. He was an amazing performer. Like, if, if James Brown and Bob Marley have a baby and that baby decides to put on an insane punk show, yeah. That's HR. Yeah, that's HR. And, and there, I mean, there are uh, some questionable things about bad brains. Yes. Yeah. But talking about their performance alone. Man, like, I've only been able to see it on YouTube, of course, uh, but it's absolutely just sublime. Yeah. I, I mean, like, you feel like you're having too much fun. From a performance point of view, yeah, Bad Brains is uh, almost unparalleled. Yes. 
Okay, back to Dead Kennedys, okay. right? So then they went to Boston, and there they played great, but Jello couldn't help himself but, like, lash out against Ronald Reagan, of course. And, <laughs> Remember, oh, this is 1981. Yes, Ronald Reagan had already had just been elected president of the United States. So Jello's running around yelling about Ronald Reagan, he's hoisting up a red flag, and, and he dedicated a song to John Hinckley Jr., <laughs> which, by the way, this show was 10 days after John Hinckley Jr. shot the president, <laughs> President Reagan. <laughs> oh, yeah. We would never do anything like that now. We would never wish death upon a president these days. <laughs> All right. Pipe down, Jello. Pipe down. <laughs> so, anyway, so, like, you know, it, it was one of those fun shows. And, and Jello obviously getting into his uh, political diatribe. and But in Boston, that's where they met Michael Bonanno, a.k.a. Microwave. Ah. I'm trying to say his name right. Banana. It's not banana. Uh, <laughs> I think it's Bonanno. Bonanno. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bonanno, yeah. So Microwave, he was a big fan who uh, became their security pretty much in their roadie for a while and later became manager for Alternative Tentacles, the Dead Kennedys label. So uh, he's important later. Yes. <laughs> so then they go to Irving Plaza. They played two nights with the Sick Kids opening. Lots of people turned out for the show, including Michael O'Donohue, you know, the founding writer uh, for uh, Nas- National Lampoon. Mm. Uh, really great writer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a genius. Yeah. And these uh, two little SNL uh, comedians uh, and soon-to-be movie stars, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. That's insane. Yeah, <laughs> they were big fans of punk. They were big yeah, fans they were. of d- Dead Kennedys. Uh, and they went there to ask if they could use a song for their movie that was coming out, the movie Neighbors. Right, which, have you ever seen Neighbors? Yes. How is Neighbors? It's fine. It's <laughs> Okay, all right. I mean, I saw it as a kid. Right. Yeah, and we rented it thinking it was like a... Uh, a Dan Aykroyd movie. Oh God! So you have a kid, and I know your st- I know your standards when you were a kid, and like the movies that you said that you saw when you were a kid that you said were fine. Yeah, this movie's got to be fucking garbage. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, the Dead Kennedys let them use Holiday in Cambodia in the movie. Hell yeah! So if you want to watch the movie, uh, it's in there. Hell yeah! That's yeah. great. So I don't know how John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd did because according to some people, the show had a lot of slam dancing and a lot of fighting. Yeah. I mean, one young fan was who was involved in all this fighting, he and a few others started fighting at the front of the stage and rolled across the floor to the top of the stairs and then rolled down the stairs still fighting. <laughs> <laughs> and that guy said it was incredible. It was like a Western or something. And if you've never been to Irving Plaza before, like that is a long distance from the front yeah. of the stage and you have to go like through doors yes. and, a, and turn a corner to, <laughs> to get to the stairs. <laughs> it was like a Western. Yeah. <laughs> Grabbing a bottle from the bar. <laughs> and that 19-year-old fan was Ian Mackay, who just about six months earlier started a band with his childhood friend, Jeff Nelson. And that band, was Minor Threat. Shut 
Seriously reignited my fucking love affair with Minor Threat. Yeah, I've oh. noticed. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know you've noticed, but man, it, it's yeah, it really has. I God, I love Minor Threat so much. Yeah, it's it it's mine. That's that's what we've been talking about over the last uh, you know couple of weeks. Is that I'm Minor Threat, you're a Black Flag. Well, we actually we've established this three years ago. <laughs> Actually, Sorry, everyone else. Actually, we did it. Yes, yeah, so we did establish that when we first started dating. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we had to get well, that out of the way before we got ago. married. Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> it's a minor threat from Washington, D.C. What are they doing in New York City? <laughs> well, the thing is, a lot of D.C. kids back then, they were very young. They were teenagers, uh, you know, 18, 19, 17. And they would go up and they would go together as a group. To go check out like shows like Dead Kennedys and stuff like that. So, and by then the Washington D.C. hardcore scene was in full swing. Yeah, I mean already just h- hardcore. 1981. Uh, I would say the band who made a tremendous impact was Bad Brains. You know who started as a jazz fusion band in 1976 <laughs> called Mind Power. Mind Power. Yeah, Until yeah. they were introduced to punk music like Sex Pistols and the Ramones. Then that's where they changed their style to punk reggae and and they changed their name to bad brains because of the ramon song bad brain of course makes perfect sense it does <laughs> so bad brains they're like oh we got this new band we got this new name so they started handing out flyers uh, for their new band like outside a benefit show you know outside in, in dc a benefit show that the cramps were headlining so ian going to go see the cramps he saw those guys the bad brains and he's like wow they look like super cool <laughs> <laughs> like the coolest fucking guys on earth over there man yeah he made a mental note for 30 years later <laughs> and then ian went in and he watched the cramps performance and he was just in total awe like especially when lux was just out there and just performing with everything he had and then he just puked all over the stage <laughs> right in the middle of the show so like the band went backstage and some guy from the venue i think just ran over and just like mopped it up <laughs> and just started getting like cleaning products gotta get these nice boys back on stage <laughs> and then they went back and finished the set. <laughs> and that's when ian was like this is amazing like th- this whole artistic but yet confrontational scene where like anything goes and, y- and you're in with whatever's happening and you're losing a little bit of control, but it's amazing. Like he's like, this is it. Like all these deviants, I found my place. Yeah. And so a few days later, Ian shaved his head with a dog trimmer from his job at the local pet shop. (laughs) And he decided this is the life for me. Oh yeah. But by then, punk wasn't like the new thing anymore. You know, there was new wave like Devo and uh, B-52s and Sid Vicious had died already. I mean, uh, no, 77 Punk was over and done with like, yes. at, the, at that point. Like, all those, and those bands are fucking great, Devo and New Wave and all that. But that's one thing that we saw again and again, I think, uh, when we talked about that band, The Nails, yes. uh, at the beginning of this series. Like, they had, se- like, for them, 77 style punk, like, that was a phase that their band had gone through, a stylistic phase. And they had just, and they completely moved on. And unfortunately for kids like Ian, it's like, well, shit. 
Yeah. <laughs> Where is this? Yeah. You know, but this legacy of punk uh, just being all about nihilism and destruction, like it ridden with drugs and heroin, it, it wasn't for Ian. He knew that. He, it was not what he was going to be about. So he was going to go beyond that and not fall into drugs like so other called tough guys that they might have been tough, but Ian was hardcore. Hell yeah. Hardcore meant to him that he didn't give a fuck what other people thought. All that mattered was a sense of discipline and not compromising his own ideals. To think for himself. Yeah. And after watching Bad Brains play one night, you know, the really cool guys. Yeah. <laughs> Coolest guys in the room. Yeah. He described that as like so energetic, so transformative. He had to start a band. So Ian, along with his childhood friend, Jeff Nelson, started a band, the one before Minor Threat. They started the Teen Idols. Here we go. And so they're about, what, 17 at this point? 17, 18. Jesus Christ. Fifty-three seconds. Jesus! <laughs> all the songs were like forty-two to fifty-five seconds. I mean, well, maybe that's like all you got because it's a lot of energy. It's a lot of energy and it's very fast. I mean, if they would have played that at half the speed, it would have been a two and a half minute song. Yeah, they're there you go. <laughs> like they're just they're doing the same sort of like pop music structure, but it's just so fast. <laughs> and you, I'm pretty sure you get tired after ten minutes. You get really tired playing. Playing hardcore is really tough. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Especially on a drummer, it's a hard, it's a hard thing. <laughs> Trust me. So at one Teen Idol show, they actually got to travel to San Francisco to play at the Mabuai Gardens, but they were underage, so they had to have these big X's drawn on their hands to show uh. that they couldn't be served, which became the rebellious mark for young straight-edge kids. Yep. You see, if they weren't allowed to drink alcohol, then fuck you, we don't want to drink alcohol. Ever. Yes. Until they turn 21. <laughs> or ever. <laughs> that was the thing. They, they, uh, especially Ian, he, he totally fronted the promoting a clean living, like no drinking, no drugs, no tobacco, no meat. And the X's on the hands just became like a sign of rebellion in that sense. So I didn't know that the X's actually came from Abu High Gardens. Well, that's where, yeah, th that's how they did it, because they were able to uh, bring that back from San Francisco to Washington and they told the 930 club they're like hey if you just put X's on our hands we won't drink can we come and see the show and yeah. they're like alright fine. All right, fine and so and then it's also on the cover of the Teen Idols record uh, Minor Disturbance uh, with the X's like uh, uh, Ian's brother Alec that's his hands Man. so it's kind of like that's where it all comes from <coughs> so it's like we were in New York and then we were in Washington and in San Francisco and we're back in Washington. And this is how it all works. Yeah, it all rolls together. And man, that shit lasts for such a long time. I mean, I remember kids like the straight edge kids at the college radio station, the straight edge punks, like they still had X's on their fucking hands. Yeah. You know, like they still like that was still something that they do. It's like, oh, man, this is how you know who I am. I remember yeah. that. <laughs> I do. Ian had to recruit the lead singer of the X-Torts. Now, the lead singer of the Extorts was Lyle Pressler. 
So Lyle was now in minor threat. Now, Lyle's old band, you know, the extorts, uh, they were shit out of luck with no lead singer. So they decided to reform as SOA, State of Alert, with new lead singer, Henry Garfield, a.k.a. Henry Rollins. Garfield. I know. <laughs> See a cop coming, you better move quick. He's gonna hit you with a stick. It doesn't matter what you've done. You're gonna suffer for fun. Man in blue, come for you. Siren's red, you're gonna be dead. Man in blue, come for you. Siren's red, you're gonna be dead. Stop your car, folks inside. Ask you where you've been tonight. Doesn't like you, everybody knows. Doesn't like your hair, doesn't like your clothes. Man in blue, come for you. Siren's red, you're gonna be dead. Man in blue, come for you. And if you want to follow our fucking new Instagram after this, No Dogs Pod, you can see Henry Rollins at this time during his tenure as a Baskin Robbins employee. He was a manager. Right? <laughs> he was a manager. We've all he, heard he did the clothes. hiring and the firing. We've all heard clothes do to shovel. <laughs> <laughs> so Henry Rollins, yes, he was a manager of Hagen Dawes ice cream. And he was also actually he was best friends, is still best friends with Ian Mackay. Uh, and he was at that Dead Kennedy show in Irving Plaza. So they, they you know, they all traveled together. They were inseparable until uh, 1981 when Henry Rollins moved to California when he was asked to be the lead singer of Black Flag. Yes. So there you go. <laughs> it's, it, honestly, there, I mean, if it's com- if it's really confusing, I, I sorry. No, I think it's you did the a great. Best we could do. I, I mean, it just shows this gigantic connected spider web uh, in which the dead Kennedys were the spider. Like, yes. <laughs> they were in the ce- ways, They yeah. were the center of the the whole fucking thing. Yes, and and DC hardcore being one of the one of the centers uh it was just a very tight-knit community of just like a handful of punks who earnestly looked out for each other they really did yes and honestly i don't think there were even more than 50 60 guys like at like ian and henry at that point at least very very early and of course a lot of bands sprung up like untouchable scream void youth brigade black market baby i think you'll like Black Market Baby. I gotta check them out. A government issue. So many. Some of these bands you can check out in the Flex Your Head compilation uh, that came out in January 1982 by Discord Records. Ah, Discord. And that's a whole other fucking... Like, like that's a whole other fucking like side quest discord records but discord's fucking yeah they're, they're great yeah like they're, that, it's discord what are you gonna say <laughs> like <laughs> diy record label that ian and jeff put together to release their first band the teen idols uh their first ep they uh they put it together after the teen idols broke up <laughs> Well, I mean, Discord, it's a lot like Alternative Tentacles. You know, it starts just to release like a band's, uh, like one band's records. And then it ends up becoming a label uh, that is insanely important to the indie music scene. Like yes. Discord, of course, eventually put out, you know, Fugazi. One of my favorite Discord uh, releases that's kind of a little under the ra- radar is Black Eyes from like the early 2000s. I still fucking love that record. Somebody has his fingers broken. It's great. <laughs> uh, but yeah, D- Discord is just, it, they're just such an amazing important label uh and they're and most of their fucking uh, catalog is fantastic and i can't believe it started with ian and jeff like they you know they had a house in virginia and it was two teenage kids basically yeah being like how do we put out a record 
you know, and, and, and so they got advice from their friend Skip Groff, who ran a record store named Yesterday and Today, helped them how to, you know, make a record themselves. They're like, oh, just take this phone number and uh, just tell them you want like a thousand whatever LPs or EPs or whatever and give them a check. And then that's all you got to do. And they're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> so that's how they got to independently release albums from State of Alert and Youth Brigade and all the bands I told you about and more. It was all completely DIY. These teenagers got tired of sitting around the TV or their clerk type jobs and uh, decided to stop complaining about the lack of opportunities and make one for themselves. That's fucking great. And that is why it's so goddamn hardcore. Hardcore! <laughs> <laughs> it's so cool. And the, the cool thing about hardcore and its relation to Dead Kennedys is that it, it was almost like two mirrors facing each other. Uh, where, you know, the Dead Kennedys would inspire the hardcore scene and the hardcore scene would take what the Dead Kennedys gave them and then reflect it right back. You know, and so inspired by what was initially a positive blast of energy from the DC hardcore scene, because it eventually was not quite so positive. Dead Kennedys got to work on what is both Jello and Carolina's favorite Dead Kennedys record, Plastic Surgery Disasters. <laughs> Just us two? It's <laughs> my second favorite. <laughs> great it's, it's it's such a super fun album yeah they recorded this at Hyde Street Studios and Mobius Music back uh, when they went back to San Francisco uh, they had a, their engineer was John Cuniberti and it was uh, produced by East Bay Ray of course and Tom Wilson uh, he, he's the guy who uh, eventually produced uh, albums for Social Distortion and, and, and the, the Offspring Smashed album yeah but after a week of recording the band had a falling out with Tom but so they kind of like told him that just go home <laughs> but kept john who engineered this album plastic surgery disasters and the rest of the, uh, their next couple albums afterwards until until the the, the end and oh god that's spoiler <laughs> <laughs> yeah spoiler dead kennedy's breakup eventually <laughs> <laughs> now from what all of you have learned so far about jello biafra it probably doesn't come as much of a surprise that he has a hard time letting go of an idea and for this album he returned to the upper-class frat boy archetype from Holiday in Cambodia 
in the much more clownish song, Terminal Preppy. The college that make it so cool I live in a dorm and show up at the pool I don't know why clubs just a building impression I'm not out thinking you won't get me ahead My ambition in life Is to look good on paper All I want is a slot In some big corporation Makes the song. Ties the whole song together. It really does. Moving on to other songs on the album. Remember we mentioned in our Misfits series that Glenn Danzig had gotten his panties all bunched up over the dead Kennedys releasing a song called Halloween shortly after the Misfits released their own Halloween. Really, when you listen to both songs, it becomes clear that Danzig probably didn't even listen to the fucking dead Kennedys version. It's the same title. That's enough. (laughs) Or at the very least, he didn't listen to the fucking lyrics because the meanings of both songs are diametrically opposed. Whereas Danzig's song is all about childhood nostalgia for the one day in which we're all allowed to revel in skeletons and dead cats and gleeful gore, Biafra's song, which I'm a little bit more inclined to relate to, is more of a dare. In his Halloween, he says, why wait? If you want to be weird, be weird. And if your life doesn't allow you to be who you want to be, then make a new one. And stop putting so much goddamn pressure on this one night in which everyone else, quote-unquote, allows you to exercise your fucking demons. Exercise them every goddamn day of your life. Woo! fluoride baselines man he fucking kills it on this album (laughs) (laughs) halloween i'm the owl like his baselines fucking rule this record 
The legends are true. Overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. And then, of course, there's the song that wasn't written by Jello at all. The last track on the album was an East Bay Ray composition, penned before the band even recorded Fresh Fruit for Riding Vegetables. The song could have and should have been, at the very least, a minor hit. But for somewhat infuriating and petty reasons, Moon Over Marin never even got close to bringing punk to the masses. <laughs> Stings my eyes, I still find time to exercise in a uniform with two right stripes. Unlock my section of the sand, it's fenced off to the water's edge. I clamp a gas mask on my head, on my beach at night. Got everything. It's so pretty. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Like the, the guitars, everything it sounds so good and then like almost wistful. It really does. Yeah. I mean, the guitar style that um, that East Bay Ray uses, like it's you know, it's the type of style. It's that like surf tinge style that like the Pixies would become famous with, like years later. You know, and the rhythm guitar is you know what the Sex Pistols were like that kind of like chunky, chunky rhythm style that the Sex Pistols used. And Jello's voice is just weird enough. Like it's just <laughs> yes. distinctive and just weird enough without being too weird, without being too much uh, out of the norm. That I think it could have eventually made it uh, to rock radio uh and eventually might have brought punk to the masses if not for pettiness <laughs> well according to ray another label was interested in putting it out as a single because it is so catchy yeah but jello said no because ray wrote the music and he also thought it was too poppy <sighs> he's like no we don't want to go that way well what, what are we gonna end up being a gimmick or something or what are we gonna do? <laughs> no so uh that that's what ray said he's like well it's probably because jello didn't write it and that was their songwriting all the time because uh, 
usually Jello would write even not necessarily write the music, but he would hum uh, along to like how he wanted the song to go. So he did do a lot of composition, but in yeah. a in a different way, but with the help of Ray and Klaus, of course. Of course, uh, but yeah, it was just. Man, <laughs> <laughs> I know it could have been out there, but uh, unfortunately, I mean, it's still a cl- it's a fucking absolute it's a punk classic. classic. Yeah. It's a punk classic. It's a wonderful fucking song, but it it should have gotten the due. It should have it should not have been just relegated to fucking movie trailers uh, as it is now. Like it's been used in like five movie trailers. Uh, <laughs> but the thing about plastic surgery disasters is that it marks a moment in the band's career when Jello becomes in. J- this is just my opinion here. He becomes a little more preachy. How do you get more preachy? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. You know, it's a little more preachy and a little less creative. And I think it all comes down to one little word. You. Both in the frequency of its use and the way that it's sung. In the Biafra compositions of Fresh Fruit, the word you is comparatively rare outside of Holiday in Cambodia. Like, of course, there's like your emotions. Your emotions make you a monster. Mm-hmm. Jello didn't write that song. Yeah. In fact, in the songs he writes in Fresh Fruit, he uses a lot more communal words like we, our, let's, let's lynch the landlord. Come on, we're doing it together. (laughs) But in Plastic Surgery Disasters, it's a preachy torrent of you, 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 especially in songs like Riot. Now you can smash all the windows that you want. Theme of the me like these people don't know how to riot. Hey, everybody, you're not rioting correctly. <laughs> There's a certain way to riot, and I know how to do it. And everyone needs to listen to how rioting is done. Why is no one listening to me? <laughs> We're listening, John. We're listening. How do we do it? Is it tonight's a blast? <laughs> Oh, wait, we're homeless tomorrow. Yeah, you're right. We've been doing it wrong all along. We've been doing it wrong. Now, of course, I don't know for sure, but I think the reason why Jello's songwriting became a little less artful is because he lost faith in his audience. Because so many people misunderstood songs like Kill the Poor and especially California Uber Alice. Mm. I think he said to hell with subtlety. Now, don't get me wrong. I still love this album. But the difference between fresh fruit for rotting vegetables and plastic surgery disasters is the difference between Dr. Strange Love and Jojo Rabbit. Both are satire, but one would never accuse Taika Wakidi of being subtle, especially when it's laid next to the genius of Stanley Kubrick. But yeah, but that could be two different kinds of genius. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, like Jojo Rabbit is more like the Great Dictator, like the Charlie Chaplin movie. It's it's actually 
kind of that. It actually is, is that. that, yeah. <laughs> In a lot of ways, yeah. And so th- maybe this is just a different, I mean, because I'm trying to t- find some way to argue no, my stance. No, I understand, and I I appreciate it and welcome. Well, the way I, I, I see it, though, is the fact that, like, it, you know, they're evolving. Although a lot of these songs, as you said, like, a couple of them were written even be- and performed before Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables, so it's kind of hard to really figure out where Jello was at this point. But remember, he's getting to know a lot of other bands. He's checking out hardcore from all over the place. They're going to Canada. They're going all over the East Coast. They're 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 up and down the West Coast. So they're checking out other bands, and, and maybe that, that might have changed a little bit, evolved a little bit, other than being like the same thing over and over again. It could be, but you also got to admit that hardcore... It's pretty fucking preachy. Is it <laughs> like Minor Threat, as much as I love Minor Threat, it could be pretty fucking preachy sometimes. <laughs> well, it's an outlet. Uh, yeah. That's it, what it serves its purpose for. It, it's, very, it's very much an outlet. But, you know, and you also brought up uh, something to me when we were talking about this a couple days later, is that you brought up to me that, you know, this also could have been a reaction to Ronald Reagan. Well, yes, he got elected. It was because uh, when uh, Jello was writing these songs, Carter, uh, Democratic President Carter w- was in office and he was just like, yeah, I'm mad about things because there's things that need to be fixed. And then when President Reagan was elected and, and it just seemed like everything was just falling down, just it, th- their whole world was caving in in a lot of ways that he thought like, ah, screw this. Let's just burn it down. <laughs> That's my theory. Yeah. And, and I think that holds. But, you know, I think. You know, opposed to fresh fruit, like you don't really have to think about plastic surgery disasters. You know, the ideas and opinions are so clearly laid out. They are beyond misinterpretation. (laughs) Like you can misinterpret, you know, certain songs on fresh fruit. Of course you can. Uh, But plastic surgery disasters. Oh, boy, that is laid bare. And I I think that was a conscious choice. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely intentional. Jello even said so himself. He wanted to expand on holiday in Cambodia and go more in that vein. It's still satire. It's still cartoony and frightening. Yeah. Just like fresh fruit. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I know, but it's so much clearer. And it's so I, I, I like, you know, it's like, I'm a well-paid scientist. Like, it's yeah, he's a, taking on the, the evil character. <laughs> I know, but it's just, it's just less artful. You know, it's, it's not, it's like, it's like he has to say, hi, I'm being evil. You shouldn't listen to this. It's serious. Like, it's, <laughs> like, it's, uh, it's like, hi, I'm an evil character. Like, it's like, that's how it seems like. The song start off where in like California Uber Alice, like it's not necessarily so clear cut. Like it's like the whole like Zen fascist thing. Like it's something that is, uh, I guess, open a little bit more open to interpretation, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know, you know, because people did interpret it very badly. <laughs> like people did really, they yes. did occasionally misunderstand that greatly, but. It's art. It took a risk. Yeah, it's you God know? Save the Queen. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's. I just. I feel like fresh fruit. Fresh fruit took a lot more risks lyrically than plastic surgery disasters did. This is never going to end. <laughs> we might as well just move forward. <laughs> well, we'll continue this tonight during dinner. Wonderful. That's. <laughs> I. I can't wait to. I'm going to pencil that in. <laughs> But speaking of being misunderstood, the cover for Plastic Surgery Disasters was highly disturbing if you actually knew what it was. But unfortunately, the pop culture sensibilities of the audience interpreted it as something completely different. Yeah, so the cover photo uh, that they used, uh, it's it's a photo of hands by a photographer, uh, Michael Wells, uh, that he 
photographed in uh, April 1980, and it's the hand of a starving African child held by a white missionary in, in Uganda. And so some people thought it was some kind of joke. Yeah. Or they thought it was E.T. <laughs> it was, oh, gosh. Yeah, I know. I know. It's like, no, it's a hand of a starving boy in Uganda during a famine that killed 30,000 people. <laughs> E.T. went home. <laughs> And they kind of explain that a little bit. Yeah, of yes. course. I mean, they weren't the first band. They were the second band to use that as a, as a cover. But uh, there's still a lot, probably a lot of explaining to do. Yeah. It, I mean, it was. it is a picture that's kind of, it's made for a punk album. <laughs> yes. Unfortunate. <laughs> that's so unfortunate. Oh, know, it's insanely unfortunate. But yeah, it's an early 80s punk album. Yeah, that that's, they're going to use stuff like that. And the misunderstandings just kept coming. Because when the Dead Kennedys did a European tour to promote the new album, they found that the Nazi youth problem had only gotten worse since their last trip to the continent. Well, I mean, if you look at the whole big scheme of things, <laughs> I you guess can't say worse. Well, I mean, okay, if you it, look it at was the history of twentieth century. It was bad, 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 oh, and, bad, and, and bad. <laughs> yeah, okay, it <was> bad, <laughs> and then it wasn't necessarily good, but under control, uh-huh. and then slowly getting worse and worse and worse again so you know we're we're back to zero still worse than zero (laughs) (laughs) not as bad (laughs) no nazis versus a bunch of nazis right right. and then it's a few nazis (laughs) (laughs) you're right (laughs) thank you well this time though the dead kennedys brought along a fellow hardcore band who just moved to san francisco from austin texas Inspired by a hatred of Texas law enforcement officials that often mix their ranks with the Ku Klux Klan, this band chose one of the most deliberately provocative names of the decade, MDC, or, spelled out fully, Millions of Dead Cops. John Wayne was a Nazi. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew? Well, Dave Dichter, he had just graduated college in the University of Texas. And on his graduation day, the news went around that John Wayne had died of cancer. And everyone stopped what they were doing and they started sobbing (laughs) all around him. And Dave thought, fuck that. Fuck John Wayne. (laughs) John Wayne's a bit... I, John Wayne is unfortunately a big deal in Texas. Uh, he's, uh, but the thing is, like, a lot of the things, uh, a lot of his, uh, I, 
political ideas uh, on he things. Had, he had just some generally shitty fucking ideas. Is, oh yeah, the the Native Americans on yes. how they're hogging up all their land. Why, <laughs> why, of course, it makes sense that we took over. Like what? Yeah, this is an interview. Yeah, he said some awful shit. Uh, some really fuck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's an interview. Why are you bringing that up? I know. <laughs> no one asked John Wayne. <laughs> but you know, in a band called Millions of Dead Cops, that might sound a little too edgy for its own good but like i said this is texas in the 1970s the clan and the cops were one and the same they were fucking intertwined and this shit was happening way into the fucking 90s i remember when i was a kid growing up in the 90s in texas i remember sundown towns still being a thing i still remember the signs What's that? sundown towns where if a black person is in town after sundown um they will be lynched they what? will be killed what yeah i remember sundown towns existing in the 90s, I remember seeing the signs. I remember in the 90s, riding on a school bus and seeing a burning cross outside of Throckmorton, Texas. This is the 90s. You know, this is maybe 15 years after, uh, maybe 15 years after MDC moved from uh, Texas out into uh, San Francisco. Uh, and, you know, seeing all that shit, you know, the MDC, like they knew that the Klan and the cops were together. So in their point of view, millions of de cops wasn't that bad of a fucking deal because it meant millions of dead clan members. And who's going to argue against that? <laughs> well, there you go. All right. <laughs> but even besides that, even outside of the obvious horrors of the clan and the cops being mixed, police and punks were constantly at each other's throats throughout the 80s. Yes. I mean, they were the cops would uh, raid shows all the fucking time. And like, and San Francisco was kind of the beginning of that. You know, all the raids from uh, fucking Diane Feinstein mm -hmm. trying to shut down the punk show. Going down to LA as well and, and shutting down a lot of Black Flag shows. That was, it was always like, let's see how far we can get in our set yeah. until they get <laughs> shut down. Yeah. But the funny thing about MDC going out on the European tour with the Dead Kennedys was that MDC found that in at least Germany, surprisingly, the relationship between the cops and the punks was miles away from what they had to deal with back home. Yes. Well, I mean, let's go into the European tour, uh, MDC opening for Dead Kennedys. Uh, they, they, they were there for a month starting in late uh, November 1982. And Dead Kennedys, they took great pains to not let any pro-Nazi band share the bill with them because they didn't want to deal with them or their fans. <laughs> But sometimes they had to deal with the National Front in England. Yeah. The National Front being a far-right fascist political party, which is based on nationalism, of course, and, and white supremacy. Yeah, the Proud Boys are like baby versions of National Front. Right. Uh, they, they call it racist. Uh, they, no, they're, they're not called racist ideas. They're racialist ideas. It just, Whatever. Yeah, let's say the Proud Boys are the Muppet Babies of the National Front. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, don't ruin Muppet Babies. Don't ruin Muppet Babies. <laughs> so Dave Dichter, the lead singer of MDC, he was on stage in Leicester where, when he noticed like a weird energy just like coming across towards him. And he saw in the front of the crowd there were some huge-ass racist skinheads picking fights with some people in the audience. So Dave yelled at them to leave and, and called them bullies and chicken shits. Yeah. I like that. Chicken I shit. love chicken shit. So those guys turned their attention to Dave. And before he could react, those guys grabbed onto him and carried him off stage into the crowd. There, he got hit and kicked badly by about like six to eight National Front skinheads, oh. which split his head open. He was knocked unconscious and had to be taken to the hospital. Jesus. Yes. And so now we're going to go to another town. <laughs> 
Brighton. Day two. Yeah. <laughs> there were a lot of National Front skinheads again who kept sig, sig hiling MDC while cursing and threatening them. And Dave yelled back, you know, trying to challenge them uh, the, to, 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 to just to get them to shut up. But they ignored him and they kept going. And it got even worse for the dead Kennedys. So it was really tense. Like there was no stage diving. There was no fun. Just a standoff between just a dozen or so of these guys like remember there's thousands of people who are very cool yeah and then there's like a th- like a dozen guys uh just intimidating the rest of the audience which ruins everyone's fun of course we've said that before everything's fun until the fucking nazis show up yes and <laughs> the nazis ruin everything nazis <laughs> never make anything better except zombie movies what <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's wolfenstein and all that yeah uh, yeah yeah so, yeah, Jello had to do the same thing at the next show in Leeds. And at this point, they knew they had to just prepare for it. And then they went to Germany. Oh. And in, <laughs> in Germany, they played in Hamburg at a school auditorium. And, and outside their dressing room, there were about, like, 50 police officers outside preparing themselves for a possible riot. So just these guys, these police officers just hang out, sitting in fold-out chairs, sipping on coffee <laughs> with helmets and riot gear on. It's like, did you bring your tear gas? Yes, I your gas. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's, it's a nice one. This seems like it could possibly be quite a nice day outside. Yeah, it looks very good here. <laughs> I'll call my wife, tell her I'm coming home early. Yeah, we, meanwhile, like, American cops, like, are showing up to punk shows with fucking full riot gear, ready to bust some fucking heads, wanting to see blood. And the German cops are just... Yeah, I guess maybe this will be a, a bit of a hard day. Maybe it'll be an easy one. I don't know. Let's just see how this all plays out. You know, it could be a fun day. We'll see. This is the amazing thing about Germans. <laughs> you can't phase them. You really can. <laughs> and so people in Germany actually kept confusing MDC for the dead Kennedys and kept asking Dave if he was Yellow Biafra. <laughs> <laughs> and Dave kept that to be like, no, no, we're opening for them and trying to explain everything, but they wouldn't understand. And so they kept mobbing him for autographs. And so eventually Dave would just be like, fine, okay, fine, I'll sign it. Yes, uh, two Fritz, yes, best <laughs> wishes from a close personal friend of Jello. <laughs> all right. And they're all like, yes, that that is good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you, Dakachon. <laughs> <laughs> and in Hanover, there was rioting inside and outside. So you call your wife. You're going to be like, the National Front fascist punks showed up again you know, wearing their green army jackets and the black boots with red laces you know the laces the color of the laces to show exactly what you know what kind of political affiliation because not all skinheads were racist not all that stuff it's a whole thing now they were running around this these uh fascist punks they were running around randomly clobbering people around them with baseball bats how they got in baseball bats, it's unbelievable. Pant I leg. <laughs> you're right. Yeah, you put it in your pant leg. But what if you put in two? Like, how do you walk? <laughs> oh, you're goose stepping. <laughs> oh, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> I shouldn't know too much about this. <laughs> anyway, so the MDC had to keep stopping their set because of the fighting. Some of these skinheads were sick hailing Dave because he was, because Dave was a skinhead, like a literal, like he had shaved hair. Which was uh, obviously a huge big misunderstanding. I was like, wait till you find out that Dave is gay <laughs> and loves women's underwear. <laughs> Openly gay. Yeah, he is. And when the Dead Kennedys played, they, they played their last song, their biggest song, uh, We've Got a Bigger Problem Now. 
Now there's the California Uber Alice course, remember? Mm-hmm. I remember. California. Yeah. Uber Alice. There you go. <laughs> and during the course, these same guys kept sick hiling and taking the song completely out of context. Of course. Well, yeah. all, they, all they hear is Uber Alice and they think, oh, they must be talking to us. They have a, Nazis do not have a, what do you call it, a, a, a flavor of, for subtlety. Nuance. <laughs> Nuance. Yeah, they, they're, not big, they're not big on those things. <laughs> so in Berlin... They played at the SO36 club, uh, and and the crowd was, like, wild, but just not as violent. It was after the show, outside the venue, where there was, this, like, this huge scene between, like, 300 audience members, like, these young people and the police. And now the German cops, like, they noticed this. They noticed that there was a little bit of infighting, a little bit of rioting, but they were, like, slowly backing things off. They were trying to keep the riot in control. Yeah. Instead of like going in there and smashing things up. Yeah, containing instead of making it worse, what you're supposed to do. So lots of kids were throwing rocks at the armored police cars, and the police, I swear to God, they just ignored it. They yeah. were just like, Psh, Yeah, what's this fuck? They have the throwing rocks. Oh no, they're throwing rocks while I'm wearing all of my fucking armor. <laughs> oh, oh no, uh, they might chip the paint on the fucking van. Exactly. Who gives a shit? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have fun, boys. <laughs> all right. Yeah, exactly. It was like, ah, you're doing better now. Uh, <laughs> so you have it out of your system? Could you go home to your mother now, please? Which is a huge difference. <laughs> From a lot of places in America at that time where the when the punk shows would when they would end up in riots as well and the police would come in in riot gear and they would go and lots of young kids would just get smashed and hurt and injured in so many ways and a lot of times these cops were proud of it. Yeah. Like I remember it was like one of Klaus, uh, Klaus said like he's like yeah I was friends with somebody who worked in a hospital and that person said that the, a cop went up to them and was like, oh, better get some beds ready because we're going to bash some young kids tonight. Jesus like, Christ. that was a plan. Yeah. No, they went in wanting to be violent. Like, that that was their goal. And MDC and, and Dead Kennedys, I mean, they had a pretty decent relationship. It was a little rocky towards the end of the tour, unfortunately. I mean, they, yeah. they were like, oh, we were drinking a lot. <gasps> what can we say? And, but, you know. Jello did agree to release their album on Alternative Tentacles. Absolutely, yeah. MDC, their first album was uh, released on Alternative Tentacles, and that's the thing is that Alternative Tentacles, which you know that was the label that the Dead Kennedys had originally started to just release their own albums, EPs, and singles. Alternative Tentacles was growing, and a lot of that was due to the failure of another label. Yeah. <laughs> Remember Bulky Products? Yeah. Remember uh, that was set up by Miles Copeland, uh, you know, Stuart Copeland's uh, brother, the, the guy who uh, owned IRS, who uh, who signed uh, Dead Kennedys. Yes. Uh, as an, uh, so he set up Faulty Products because of for because of Dead Kennedys. Because of the name Dead Kennedys. Yes. Yeah. He he had gone yachting with one of the Kennedys. <laughs> So, Faulty Products was a, uh, became an, an American independent record label and distribution company for other labels like Alternative Tentacles, uh, and they had bands like Circle Jerks and and Human Switchboard uh, and Human Switchboard and and the Bangles. Yeah, yeah. Walk well, like an Egyptian. Well, that was later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, come on, that's a, that's a Bangles song everyone knows. So yeah, Faulty Products was pretty much like the the step kids that they kind of liked but weren't family. Yeah. It was for the uncommercial acts. Pretty much. It's a B team. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they were based ma- mainly on the West Coast and L.A. And actually, the funny thing is, one time Jello ran into their offices and he was like completely out of breath. And he was like, oh, God, some people are really pissed off at me because I'm wearing this shirt. And they looked down and his shirt said, shoot Bush first. <laughs> 
And this was after Reagan was shot, of course. <laughs> of course, <laughs> so man. He's like, give me, give me another shirt. Give me. And so Faulty's like, here, here's a go-go shirt. And he's just like, thank you. And he just walks off that way. <laughs> so, so oh, by nineteen, it's a fucking Looney Tunes cartoon. <laughs> So by 1982, Faulty went under because of a lot of mishandling of funds. And Miles Copeland pretty much lost interest in his stepkid label <laughs> since it barely made any money apart from Dead Kennedys and that Bangles EP. Yeah. Before the Bangles decided, like, eh, we're going to go with Columbia. Yeah. And, you know, the rest was history for them. Yes, <laughs> of course. I, I mean, like, Faulty Records or Faulty Products failing, like, it, it was just runoff from how badly IRS Records was run. Yes. <laughs> IRS was a famously uh, badly run record label. We've, we talked about with the Cramps. We talked about with the Ramones. Uh, everyone hated IRS. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And, well, luckily, Dead Kennedys learned about Faulty going under right before, so they were able to pick up their records that, th- that had been pressed there and brought it to Alternative Tentacles. And they're like, all right, let's put up a sign. We're starting <laughs> Alternative Tentacles up again. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Celebrate and save at Ashley's Anniversary Sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep Mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. And so, with an inventory at the ready, Alternative Tentacles began releasing singles, EPs, and albums by Black Flag, Husker Du, DOA, The Crucifix, and TSOL. Or is it TSOL? Or is it Sol? I don't fucking know. No one can give me a straight answer on that. I can't help but say TSOL. I, I think that's wrong. That's wrong, right? I don't know. Because shit. <laughs> but the point is they were putting out releases by you know the best fucking punk punk bands of the day like you know black Fl- six pack the six pack single was released on alternative tentacles but the cool thing about alternative tentacles and i just love saying alternative tentacles the cool <laughs> thing about alternative tentacles is that besides the straight up punk they also took chances on weird shit they just liked for example on their tour of australia jello came upon a band in adelaide called grong 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 grong. Grong grong. Grong grong. Brilliant.
They really know how to commit to a riff. <laughs> they really do. I love it. Yeah, it's fucking great. Gong, gong. <laughs> what did you say about, we were listening to the gong, gong record earlier today. What did you say about him? Oh, uh, it, it's like like Joker or Shredder, like, like you know, the bad guy in cartoons and stuff. It, it's like if their thugs had a weekend off and started a band, <laughs> it would be gong, gong. That's gong, gong. It, and that's the thing. We were listening to the gong, gong record. You, Carolina ordered it. I off. ordered it, yes. Yeah, she ordered it from the Alternative Tentacles uh site and the amazing thing about it is that we actually got like an original pressing from 1986 like <laughs> they still had copies of grong grong first pressing just in their fucking it warehouse a little dusty <laughs> a, little bit. a little bit no grong grong's great they're, they're named after a an australian town called grong grong as that all the guys were fucking riding around doing acid and they came across a, a town called grong grong and the lead singer wouldn't stop saying grong grong because he was on acid and he thought it was the funniest fucking thing he ever heard in his life grong, yes grong grong I mean, he never got old <laughs> <laughs> now that album that's from that was released in 1986 but the kennedys had originally come upon grong grong during their tour of australia in 1983 which is a tour that ended up being hugely influential to the development of Australian punk. But true to form, the Dead Kennedys brought an American tradition to Australia. Yeah. And caused a full-fledged riot. Oh. <laughs> in the Sydney suburb of Cronulla Beach, which was Cronulla's first and last riot until 2005. Wow, that's quite a span of time. <laughs> but remember, they also brought another tradition uh, Dead Kennedys brought. It was uh, those shows that Australians learned about stage diving. Yeah. Since Jello would constantly jump off stage and into the crowd and do some crowd surfing. So at one show in Australia, he dived in. But since the audience had never seen anything like that before, they moved away. <laughs> and Jello just crashed on the floor. Fuck! <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, Jello. Crowd surfing isn't a thing yet. <laughs> Actually, you know what? You just started it. You just started you just it, man. Started it. Hell yeah, yeah bro. No. <laughs> now, the thing about the Australian punk scene in the early 80s that was both cool and kind of frustrating was that since Australian cities are so fucking far apart, each scene in each town wasn't completely aware of what any other scene in any other town was doing. Not really. No, especially if you're driving around on LSD. <laughs> as far as my understanding goes, Melbourne is known as the cool city in Australia, right? I think so. Yeah, it's the cool It's Or at least Melbourne is the hippest city in Australia. And that certainly rings true with their most well-known artist. Melbourne was the home of Nick Cave. And therefore, the first home of the birthday party before they fucked off to England. <laughs>
Christ, my fucking Spotify Discover playlist has been trying to get me to listen to Release the Bats by the birthday party for years when they should have just had me listen to Mr. Clarinet. It's uh, it's the, it's obviously the better song. Send a letter. <laughs> Actually, you can call them. <laughs> by contrast, you know, to Melbourne, Adelaide, which is my personal favorite city in Australia because it's just so goddamn strange. We got to do an Australian tour last year. Yeah, and I got to go. You got to it go. It was cool. It was so cool. Adelaide was so cool. Hey, Wade. Hi. Hi. Oh, you guys are so cool. You guys are great. Uh, Adelaide had the more eccentric and noisy bands. You know, they had Grong Grong, uh, but they also had uh, Purple Vulture Shit, uh, who's, let's say they're a more visual band. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they got, there's a couple of performances posted on YouTube. If we played it, it's just straight up fucking, it's just straight up yeah. noise. Yeah. And it's a bad record. Straight up noise is great. If it's recorded well, this is just a fucking camcorder recording, but it's, it's worth going and checking out. But there was a dark side to Australia, just like there was and still is in America. Shows were canceled in Perth because of threats to the promoter, not because of the name Dead Kennedys, but simply because it was punk. And cops raided shows put on by Perthlings constantly <laughs> in an attempt to squash the scene. Perthlings. Learn that word from our tour manager. Simon. <laughs> Simon. <laughs> look, we're we're, we're going to name our next dog <laughs> Simon. <laughs> Wonderful man, introduce me to Solo. But nothing could have truly prepared the dead Kennedys for what was then, for all intents and purposes, a far-right dictatorship operating in the major Australian city of Brisbane. And this was somewhat surprising because Brisbane also happened to be the home of Australia's biggest 77 punk band, The Saints. <laughs> Saints were cool. They're really cool. The <laughs> <laughs> Saints are fucking awesome. We came this close to doing the Saints. Yeah, yeah, I know. yeah, yeah. The Saints were fucking cool. Brisbane was not. Oh well, then. Then are you talking about then? <laughs> then I'm talking oh. about then. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh right, right. Yeah. Oh, we're the Dead Kennedys Australian tour. Yes, we're. Okay, that, yeah. That's where we are right now. <laughs> yeah, we're on the Dead Kennedys Australia. Yeah, Brisbane. Yeah, when the Saint, yeah, the Saints are f super fucking cool. But it's it's hard to see. How uh, you know a band like uh, the Saints can come from this fucking place, especially in this time period? Well, like you said, the far right dictatorship—it was just uh, uh, there was a lot of unrest there. Yeah. And D. H. Peligro, you know, Dead Kennedy's drummer, and remember, he's a black man from St. Louis, Missouri. He had to deal with a lot of racist attitudes within and outside the punk scene, and in, not not just in San Francisco, but when they toured the South, Europe, and then there was Australia. And even though the Australian crowds loved Dead Kennedys, a few of them who didn't know what the band looked like 
we're racist assholes towards DH. Of course. Like outside the venue before a show, there was like a lo- long line of fans just waiting to get in. And DH just walks by to get into the place when one guy yells, go home, you black bastard. Jesus. To him. And DH just shakes his head. He's like, oh, you just wait till you see who's on stage. <laughs> <laughs> Which is at least somewhat satisfying somewhat. at the very least. Yeah. And in Brisbane. 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 The Queensland region, uh, they were notorious uh, just for, they were infamous, <laughs> you could say. Not famous, but infamous. Infam- more than famous. More than, <laughs> yes, they're rife with uh, corruption and a racist police state who pretty much had free reign to harass, rape, and sometimes murder the dark-skinned native people of Australia, the aboriginals. Yes. And so after, you see where this is going. Yeah, you see exactly where this is fucking going, yeah. I mean, the, the treatment of aboriginals in Australia is a, a dark fucking chapter in their history. So after their show in Brisbane, DH was just hanging outside and drinking with the Johnnies, uh, the, the cowpunk band that were opening for the Dead Kennedys. He's just hanging out. He stepped outside the venue when they noticed all these cop cars everywhere lined up. He's like, all right, well, whatever. I guess this is what they do. And DH kept walking while sipping his beer when one cop yelled, hey, you. Get, get over here. You know, and the cop actually called him a racial slur for aboriginals. Yeah. And DH saw him, but ignored the cop and just kept walking because, you know, fuck that cop. Yeah. Which pissed off the cop even more. Of course. So the cop followed DH and kept yelling at him to come to him to, to obey his orders or yeah. something. And DH just kept walking, just walking faster, trying to get around the corner to the backstage door of the venue where he ran into East Bay Ray. And by then, the cop, with his gun in his hand, caught up to him and arrested him, saying he was dis- disobeying a direct order. Jesus. All while still using racial slurs uh, towards DH. And as DH was put in the cop car, he kept yelling, like, I'm not Aboriginal. I- I'm an American. And so Ray went up to the cop to, like, to, to kind of try to talk this out, while the band manager brought out DH's American passport and papers to, like, kind of be like, what are you doing? And the yelling kept continuing and escalated to the point where Ray was... Like, fighting with the cop, which led to Ray being shoved into the wall and handcuffed. Jesus. So, but DH, he remember, DH is in the cop car. He was not handcuffed. So he kicked the back door open <laughs> and jumped out of the cop car. Hell yeah. But the thing is, the door hit the cop in the ass, which knocked the cop over. <laughs> and just got up. It's like, now you're going to jail. Yeah. So DH and Ray were both booked and put in a group cell. Now, this part of the story is really fun. Yeah. <laughs> You see, the thing is, DH was put in a cell with a bunch of cute punk rock girls who had been at the show. Aww. He was surrounded by a sea of beautiful women, fishnets, and short skirts who fawned all over him. And as he put it, he was in heaven. <laughs> so the next morning... Are we sure that happened? He Yes. Oh, you've got to read his book. <laughs> the next morning, DH and Ray were bailed out. And uh, DH, unfortunately, he had to part from all his new friends. Yeah. Uh, he's like, all right, guys, I'll call you. Yes, he's gathering all these phone numbers. <laughs> and right before they left, one of the cops asked him for his autograph. Wow. Yeah. So that's that's how it went. Yeah. That- it was just a huge misunderstanding, which was completely unnecessary. Yeah, completely unnecessary. Yeah, it was fucking awful. And everybody around, they were all drinking beer. Yeah. And his wasn't even fucking open. They singled him out. Yes, they singled him out merely because he was black. Now, the Australian tour was in 1983. So by the time the dead Kennedys got back to the United States, the re-election of punk's perennial boogeyman, Ronald Reagan, was already in full swing. Now, when it comes to Reagan, it's easy to think that the people who'd voted him into office in 1980 were a bunch of terrified old fucks who'd cast their ballot for a mediocre actor because he made them feel good after the utter chaos of the 70s. 
Are we gonna get political? This is history. It's yeah. it's like what yeah. we talked about before. This at this point, we're talking fucking history here. Yeah, but I I still wanna I wanna pitch a podcast to the network. It's gonna it's gonna call it's gonna be called the way I see it. <laughs> <laughs> because I I it, it's unbelievable when, when it comes to this history. Yeah. And while, you know, the old age group, 65 and up, while they did vote for Reagan in droves, Reagan's second largest voting block was, to everyone's surprise, aged 18 to 24. Meaning the people who were supposed to be the punk's allies against the fucking establishment were in fact suckling the teat of the gross self-interest that defined the Reagan era. Alex fucking Keaton ain't so funny anymore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's more like Patrick Bateman. <laughs> And so, to fight back against Reagan, his policies, his moral majority, his escalation of the war on drugs, his complete bungling of the AIDS crisis, his closing of mental hospitals nationwide, and everything else he did that we're still fucking paying for today, the dead Kennedys joined the fun but ultimately ineffectual Rock Against Reagan tour. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, <laughs> it sounded like a blast. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the Yippies, the, the Youth International Party, uh, they, they, they actually helped put together the Rock Against Reagan tour from 1983 to 1984, just up to uh, Reagan's re-election. So they had bands, they called up a lot of bands like the Dicks, MDC, Reagan Youth, Crucifix, and Dead Kennedys, amongst others. You know, And they're like, let's put this together, because this wasn't just some carefree, fun music show. The tour consisted of dozens of cities all over the country where they tried to raise awareness about the U.S. elections and the possible repercussions of an apathetic culture where many young people didn't care to vote. Yep. So these shows had political speakers, they, they played documentary films, they, they, they had voter registration for whoever wanted to register to vote. So there was, it was a lot of things. Yeah. And several demonstrations like die-ins, where a group of people get together in a public space and collapse to kind of symbolize the consequences of a nuclear war. Yeah. And uh, people with signs and in costumes. Like a, a guy dressed up as a lobster who was interviewed by the press. <laughs> and they're like, isn't that hard to march in? He's like, yeah, actually, it is. <laughs> actually, this is a really bad idea. It's hard being a lobster in this city. <laughs> and a group of people dressed in nun costumes uh, performing an exorcism on a fake Jerry Falwell. Mm -hmm. uh, which I, I wouldn't they're having fun with it. Who's the poor chubby friend of theirs that got asked to do that? <laughs> it's like, do you know who you look like? <laughs> <laughs> so okay oh sorry that's it actually yeah uh, and you know what we really 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 did not plan to do the dead kennedy series around the time of the election we did not plan this at all <sighs> always every time <laughs> it's just another fucking synchronicity we, we did not plan this it just fucking came out that way <laughs> that's how the fucking cookie crumbled so I'm sorry. <laughs> Why are you <laughs> now, Eventually, Rock Against Reagan made its way to San Francisco for a show that just happened to coincide with the 1984 Democratic National Convention. Now, concerning conventions, if you'll remember, the 1968 DNC ended in riots and widespread police brutality, and the whole thing was presided by a terrified MC5 who were just there to play a show. Because, if you remember, the MC5's political political beliefs were, by their own admission, a fucking pose. Right. They just wanted girls and uh, money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, remember, their their whole thing was like, like, man, you see this bitch and fucking Camaro I got? It's yeah. Like, that's, that was the MC5. But what's lesser known is that a smaller version of the chaos of the 1968 DNC played out in 1984. But that time, it involved a no less political but far more sincere group, our very own 
dead Kennedys. Of course, they had to headline the show. They played outside of the Moscone Center on Mission Street. The, the band went on stage in front of thousands of people. They were wearing KKK hoods that they made. Ah. Yes, like, DH, <laughs> keep sewing. I know this is awkward. Yes, keep going. Yes, actually, his is best. Why is that? So anyway, so they, they go on wearing their, their hoods, and as soon as they start playing, they pull off their hoods all at the same time, which revealed underneath... Reagan masks. <laughs> so you get, you know. I get it. I get it. Yes, yes. It's just, and that's just the thing about political rallies. It's just like, it's always like, huh, that's funny. It's, like, <laughs> it's, it's not it's, subtle. Yeah, it's not subtle and it, it's not particular. It's just like, wow, that that's that's funny, guys. That's funny. It's not ha ha funny the necessarily. Whole, the whole point of a protest is to be very loud and, yes. and, and intentional. Yes, of course. But it's not that funny. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit. So Jello's on stage, and he kept yelling between songs. He's like, don't get busted. Don't get busted. Because over 369 people were arrested that day. Fuck. Because it started with a march by uh, the, the War Chess Tour, who were protesting the corporations who funded these uh, Democrat leaders to, to further their business in the military industry, meaning the nuclear industry. That's right. So these guys were protesting the Democrats, in the sense, and the corporations, of course. And so as the protesters marched closer to the Moscone Center, many of the protesters were getting booked for investigation of obstructing traffic. Hmm. They were obstructing traffic because the crowds by the police were forced to block the street. And then they're like, now you're arrested. Yep. Now, <laughs> yes, we have forced you to break the law. And now we are arresting you for that. So, uh, you know, some people caught wind of that. So then a second march was quickly to put together to protest that. <laughs> So by the end of the second march, like hundreds of people were in jail and many, many injuries caused by the police and the, the, just the obvious stampede of, of, of a riot. And the whole time, Jello is just like, don't get busted. Just <laughs> do your best. Just kids. But even after all that, neither Rock Against Reagan nor the Dead Kennedys were done. So the band and the festival attended the next political convention of 1984, which was down in, let's say, a less friendly venue. Dallas, which occurred just weeks later. Like, yeah. that's how they were treated in San Francisco. <laughs> then they go to Dallas. Well, they're, they're at the Republican uh, convention. They, they, they set up their live show. It was right next to the convention where the, the designated protest zone was, the, the free speech area. Mm -hmm. And the Dead Kennedys live show went great. And at the end, Jello noticed that the Republicans were starting to leave the convention center, like right alongside them. So he yelled, hey, look, everyone, the Republicans are leaving the convention. <laughs> I think a nice chant is in order. How about a, I don't know, a nice fuck off and die <laughs> <laughs> so hundreds of protesters began chanting it loudly as a republican convention people who just walked by so yes you're right subtlety is god <laughs> is god yeah it, absolutely it no longer lives here <laughs> yeah i mean that was a very interesting convention i mean the interesting side note about that rnc is that in the middle of all that protesting a man named greg johnson was arrested for burning an american flag and it was this incident that led to the supreme court ruling that we could in fact burn a flag whenever and however the fuck we wanted because this is after all america benjamin franklin wouldn't give a shit if i burned a flag George Washington might, but John Adams wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but when you look at Rock Against Reagan through the lens of history, you start to see that not only did Reagan win the election in the macro, but he also won the overall cultural war against the punks in the micro. For proof of this, 
Think back to just about any fucking action movie dealing with street crime released between 1984 and 1999. Most likely, if you think about the easy, stereotypical, low-level villains... Like Grong Grong? Like... <laughs> Yeah, like Gronk Gronk. That's what they would sound like. That's what, exactly what they would sound like. But if you think about those people, you'll recall wild-eyed punk after wild-eyed punk laughing a high-pitched mocking cackle just before the hero either beats the shit out of him or shoots him dead. It's always, <laughs> yeah. what yeah. are you doing down here? Like, it's always that laugh. That's the, that's the fucking punk, the dangerous punk laugh. <laughs> In fact, if I remember correctly, would RoboCop shot that guy's dick? Yeah. That guy was one of a pair of punks roaming the streets of Detroit, ready to attack anyone who happened to be walking down a dark alley at night. And the prevailing theory about this is that it was no longer acceptable by, you know, 1981, 82, 83, 84. It was no longer acceptable to use minorities as people who immediately signaled danger. So punks became the go-to no-stakes villains when a filmmaker wanted to demonstrate just how tough the hero was. In other words, a hero could shoot a punk in the head and the audience would cheer because the audience had been trained to be afraid of punks. And technically, all this happened before the true culture war even began. Once Reagan was in office, Tipper Gore and the Parents Music Resource Center reared their ugly heads and fired the opening salvo of the culture war right at Jello Biafra. Oh, this is another movie. <laughs> really should be. And it's with Frankenchrist, penis landscape, and the obscenity trial that followed that will end our series on the dead Kennedys on the next No Dogs in Space. Yes. I mean, we're going to talk not just about the obscenity trial. It's not going to be all boring trial talk. I mean, <laughs> well, we d definitely want to get into the legacy and everything and, and how we uh, we talked about DC hardcore and all the hardcore bands sprouting up from L.A. And, and, and San Francisco and how the, they created a network and lifelong friendships. Yeah. And, and lots and lots and lots of documentation that that you could check out at any time. Yeah, I mean, and the obscenity trial is fascinating. I mean, there are police raids. There are impassioned speeches. Yes, Oprah is involved. Oprah! <laughs> and we're, of course, going to talk about Frankenchrist, the actual album, because the actual album is also fucking great. Yes. That tends, I, to, that tends really to get good. forgotten in the conversations that Frankenchrist is a great fucking album. I know. I couldn't find anything on Frankenchrist. <laughs> like, very, very little, because everyone's talking about the penis landscape. Exactly. Which we'll hear all about next time. H.R. Uh, Giger and all that. And, you know, and then we can get into, you know, a lot of the stuff that Jello Biafra did after Dead Kennedys uh, and, of course, the lawsuit of the late 90s. And we've got our own opinions on that one, oh, don't we? Yes. <laughs> but thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, as always, uh, don't forget we got No Dogs in Space t-shirts for sale over at lastpodcastmerch.com. And then we got this new uh, Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, no Dog Pod. Yeah, No Dogs Pod. No Dogs Pod. Yeah, No Dogs Pod. Yeah, we're going to be posting uh, just like cool pictures that we find uh, in our research uh, travels. Uh, and, of course, that's where we'll be posting uh, updates on when episodes are coming out and, and all that stuff. Uh, so, yeah, go follow No Dogs Pod. And we <laughs> thank you very much for doing that because you're doing it right now, aren't you? Yeah, Oh, yeah, you I are. hope you are. Uh, and for our band this week, of course, every single week uh, we play uh, a band uh, that, you know, has sent us their music uh, to no dogs in space at gmail.com. You know, if you want to send us your band, send it on over. Uh, but this band this week 
These guys are fucking great. Yeah. Uh, it's post-punk out of Minneapolis. They call it apocalypse music. They're called City Barricades. Uh, and I fucking, I love this. <laughs> I love this band. I knew you would. <laughs> yeah, if you want to check out their music, you can go and uh, hear them at citybarricades.bandcamp.com. Uh, They've got a couple of albums. They've got a couple of singles. Uh, there's so many, fi- like Kick Against the Pricks is a great fucking song. Day Drinking with the Commissar is is fucking awesome uh their new album uh is great i really love their new album the new album's called support your local insurrection and we're gonna play uh, a song off of that album it's called dumb dumb boys versus free cocaine uh it's <laughs> fucking great yeah uh, so yeah enjoy it uh and uh you know buy the album from city barricades uh if you've got a little bit of extra cash you know support support your local bands during this time uh, until they can get on the road and uh, start playing again, which might be a while. So support them now. Uh, So thank you very much for listening, everybody. And we'll see y'all in a couple of weeks with Dead Kennedys Part 5. Yeah. Goodbye. Goodbye. Begins with two grand worth of cocaine in a bag in an alley. You know.
legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket Games from the Virginia Lottery are here. The Scratcher gives you the chance to win up to $100,000. The online game gives you the chance to win up to $1 million. For more information, visit VALottery.com.